This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, I got to chat with two of the Missouri Arts Council's featured August artists. In Act One, Columbia-based author and educator Steve Wigenstein chats about being an Ozarker whose ties to the region predate the Civil War and whose great-uncle George met his end courtesy of an infamous and terrifying Missouri gorilla, a bogeyman of his childhood who made his way into Steve's novel series about a fictional town of utopia deep in the Missouri Ozarks. And in Act 2, sculptor of abstract metal horses Butch Murphy chats about his work and how he detoured from a life of medicine and very clean hands to a world of rust, oil and grime. Before we get underway, though, a reminder that Talking Horses' production of The Things You Least Expect, which we featured on last week's show, has its opening night tomorrow after a one-week postponement. And there is just one week left to get an artwork ready for the Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Art Exhibit, this year titled Possibility, Promise, and inspired by this year's One Read book, The Big Door Prize. You can find out more information about the exhibit and the program at oneread.dbrl.org. And with that, let's head out to the fictional town of Daybreak. I love it when a novel sends me off into a research rabbit hole. And Columbia author Steve Wigenstein's series of novels about the fictional town of Daybreak did just that. The rabbit hole of 19th century utopian settlements. More than 80 utopian communities were started in the 1840s, but few made it more than a couple of years. Fruitlands, started by Louisa May Alcott's father, lasted around seven months and was semi-fictionalised in Alcott's book Transcendental Wild Oats. Brook Farm in Boston lasted five years and has another 19th century literary link, counting Nathaniel Hawthorne amongst its founding members. And maybe one of the longest lived were the Icarians, founded by a Frenchman, which had a series of communities starting in Texas before moving to Iowa and to a lesser degree, Missouri, from 1848 to 1898. Wigenstein is himself a scholar of utopian movements and spent a few years working as a newspaper reporter before moving into teaching at the college level. Plus, he is a fifth generation native of the Ozarks, so it seemed a natural progression for him to combine his training as a writer with his deep-seated knowledge of the Ozarks and his curiosity about utopian movements, and thus Daybreak and its inhabitants came to literary life. The three books in the series are Slant of Light, set just prior to and during the Civil War, This Old World, which returns to Daybreak at the end of the Civil War, and The Language of Trees, which moves us forward to the 1880s and the second generation of Daybreak citizens. All of the books are available at Daniel Boone Regional Library. And for the next 15 minutes or so, Steve Wigenstein is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Steve. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Utopian settlements were a fascinating experiment in egalitarian living. Tell me how you fell into this rabbit hole and became a scholar of them. Well, I became a scholar of them by accident, sort of, in that uh, I was teaching a great books class in a freshman class many years ago, and one of the books we were reading was The Communist Manifesto. And in The Communist Manifesto, it was a sort of sneering reference to Icarians. And I thought, who are the Icarians, <laughs> naturally? Uh, so I had to go look them up. And they were so interesting in that they were this uh, group of French communists who lived in the Midwest for roughly 50 years that I started uh, researching them to learn more and more. And as rabbit holes often do, it just kept getting deeper and deeper. And so uh, I, I, you know, I was fascinated by the Icarians, and then that spread to other 19th century utopian communities. So I've been sort of living in that territory for, for 35 or so years by now. It's a fascinating subject. Do you have a favorite utopian settlement? Wow, golly. Um, I'd have to say the Icarians because mm. I know so much about them. But certainly there's a really wide range of interesting and sometimes rather odd groups. Perhaps the most curious bunch were there. There's a group that were called the Koreshans down in Florida. And they spelled it just like the Koresh of the famous Waco settlement, the modern Waco settlement. But these were totally unrelated and 100 years earlier. But one of their central beliefs was that the earth was hollow. Ah, um, hollow earth people. They're still around. And, you, know, you take something like that and you just think, now, how do you come up with this idea that the, <laughs> that the earth is hollow? And something that seems so easily disproven, you know, but uh, they were determined. But they were also really uh, a cool group because they were led by uh, what was referred to as the Seven Sisters. They had a, a leadership of seven elders, so to speak, of women who were the sort of decision makers of the community. And, you know, they're just a very curious and interesting bunch of people. Why were the 1840s such a golden age for utopian societies? I think part of it is enlightenment thinking still in a flourishing stage plus the the romantic ideal of uh, the perfectibility of human nature had come into full flower with uh, Rousseau and people like that so you know it was just kind of in the air that you could make a, a sort of working model of a perfect society and of course the European countries were thick with um, thinkers like this uh, socialist thinkers or utopian thinkers of one sort or another. But then also in the United States, there was cheap land and you could reasonably get a group of people together and go out into the frontier and acquire land for little or no money, which of course wasn't possible in Europe. And so there was a kind of a chance for these things to really burst out into bloom, so to speak. Mm. So um, I think that probably was the basis for it. The Icarians are clearly visible in your books. You have a character in the first book called Adam Cabot. Mm -hmm. 
C-A-B-O-T, which I'm guessing is in honor of the founder of the Icarian movement, the French man Etienne Cabet. And you have the French father and daughter, Emile and Marie Macadier, the namesake of Benjamin Macadier, who took over the Icarian colony after the death of its founder. What are some of the other characters or characteristics maybe that you adopted from the Icarians in these books? Well, I kind of modeled the Daybreak community on the Icarians in that they were great believers in complete democracy. Uh, They took votes on everything. (laughs) Sounds like KOPN. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, I need a new pair of shoes, and they would take a vote on whether you really needed a new pair of shoes or not, you know, that kind of level. And they also had a charismatic leader, as so many of these societies did, who was a very compelling speaker. He was a member of the French Parliament and, you know, was able to attract followers very effectively, but who was a terrible administrator. And one of the signal moments in the life of the Icarians was when they were living in, they had a community in Nauvoo, Illinois for a time. And things got so fractured in their Nauvoo community that the community actually voted to have a new leader instead of their leader. And, you know, this is <laughs> like, but Cabet was, was just flabbergasted by this and thought, well, it's my community. I founded <laughs> this thing. How could you throw me out? But they did. And uh, he took a, a bunch of his group and went to, uh, well, he took his group to St. Louis, and then the rest of the Icarians went off to uh, Iowa after that. So that's there. there's a scene in Slant of Light that is a lot like that, that's very similar, where the uh, the leader just proves to be utterly inadequate to the tasks of leadership, and the community has to kind of figure out what to do as a result. There are many leading personalities in your book, but the two who really launched this series are husband and wife, James and Charlotte Turner. James, the young idealist who sells the dream of his utopian idyll, but who is terribly flawed, and his wife, who follows him to deepest Missouri and who, it turns out, has a backbone of steel. How much did you, as the author, direct their lives? And how much did Charlotte in particular take over her own story? Well, that's a great question, because this particular book changed a lot from its initial draft to what ultimately became the publication, in that I'd originally conceived it as alternate chapters of James and Charlotte, James and Charlotte, all the way through, Um, But after I finished that draft that way, I realized that Charlotte was such a rich and interesting character to me that I felt as though the structure was not giving her the level of significance that she deserved. And so I undertook a complete rewrite, and Charlotte emerged really as my favorite character, but a, but a much more important character. And Adam Cabot emerged as well as a kind of mm. third point of view character to kind of balance out the two of them. So um, the more I wrote, 
the just the more interesting Charlotte became. I just couldn't keep her down, you know, and uh, <laughs> it was really quite a, um, you know, people talk about characters that take on a life of their own, and that certainly was the case for me. I have to say, I, I quickly came to dislike James. Uh, and although I, I like Charlotte a lot, I just love how strong she is against such adversity. But there are definitely times in the first book where I find her to be willfully blind. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Tell me who your initial influences were for Charlotte. Was there any Carrie and who was like Charlotte that you based her on? Or is she based on a composite of women in your life? Well, I would have to say I think Charlotte is more uh, has a lot more in common with just the various women who have influenced me and who I have known over my life. Um, I've been very lucky in that I have been influenced and and learned a, a great deal of things from a lot of very strong and and powerful women through the years, and uh, I think whether deliberately or just unconsciously, I drew on all of them for the character of Charlotte as somebody who is uh, really resilient. She's always pretty much smarter than everybody else (laughs) around her, but at the same time, she has significant obstacles to overcome. So there is really no uh, comparable character in the utopian societies of the time. If there wasn't a a 19th century character who she resembles, I think it would be Margaret Fuller, uh, who, kind of like Charlotte, was always underestimated by the people around her. Mm, Particularly the men. Exactly. (laughs) So these are works of historical fiction. So although almost all the characters we meet are fictional. There is the reality of the Civil War setting, references to Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, the landscape of southeastern Missouri. But there is one character in the book who was very real in southern Missouri. Tell us about the bushwhacker Sam Hildebrand and how his history intersects with your own ancestors. Well, Sam Hildebrand was a uh, guerrilla during the war. He grew up in Washington and St. Francis counties of Missouri, which is eastern Missouri, sort of uh, 70 or so miles south of St. Louis. And when the war broke out, he got into a conflict with the authorities and set out on a course which led him into the entire war of of guerrilla warfare throughout southern Missouri and northeast Arkansas. And he was a terrifying, terrifying character, like a lot of these Missouri guerrillas were. And he survived the war and dictated an autobiography to a couple of friends. And in that, he claims to have killed 86 people personally. Uh, you know, there's some doubt as to the accuracy of that number because everybody blows up their war experiences a bit. But the first man he killed, and it's documented very well, was my great-great-uncle. Wow. <laughs> and and there was a family story, and Sam Hildebrand was kind of the boogeyman of our family when I was a kid growing up, about how Uncle George had been out in the woods, and Hildebrand had come upon him and, and had shot him down. 
And uh, Hildebrand basically confirms that account in his autobiography. He thought that my great great uncle was a uh, was an informer to the federal authorities, and perhaps he was. I don't know. But anyway, I can remember uh, my dad telling us kids when we were being rowdy at night, you know, <laughs> go to bed or uh, Sam Hildebrand will come get you. <laughs> and so he was always a kind of a, a figure who loomed large in my childhood <laughs> consciousness, I guess. So I thought, well, I kind of owe it to the family to bring Sam into this story. I think for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the book is how the community of Daybreak tiptoe along this Civil War tightrope trying to stay as neutral as possible whilst being beset by both Union and Confederate soldiers because of where they were in the country and ultimately trying to not get completely burnt to the ground, which was happening to many communities. And I'm curious how realistic that would have been in that area. Could they really have survived? A lot of people started out that way. A lot of communities and families started out that way, trying to maintain neutrality. Um, you know, I think the history of Missouri during the Civil War is kind of under-acknowledged because it was a very unique place in that it had it had voted overwhelmingly to remain in the Union. As soon as the war broke out, the governor wanted to he wanted to side with the Confederacy and. You know, he called an election, and it turned out the voters would have nothing of it. They wanted to be unionists, but they were also, of course, a slave state. So it was this very strange mixture of being unionist and slaveholding. And a lot of Missourians began the war thinking, this is uh, not our fight. We'll let the eastern states fight this out. We'll just kind of keep... (laughs) (laughs) keep the peace and see how we can muddle through. But of course, once war breaks out, all bets are off. And, uh, you know, one of the first big encounters of the war occurred in Missouri at Wilson's Creek. So, you know, as soon as that happened, well, it very quickly became a situation where neutrality was no longer an option. Although people still held out as long, many people still held out as long as they could, trying to please both sides. But once guerrilla warfare starts, and Missouri was very much a guerrilla warfare state, no quarter is given. Taking of prisoners is not really an option in many cases. It was kill or be killed. And so people had to line up on one side or the other. And I think the actual day-to-day experience of the war in Missouri was probably one of the most terrifying and brutal places in the whole country because of the nature of that and that you couldn't trust anybody. Neighbors would inform on on neighbors to settle personal grudges. Families would be split for, you know, one reason or another, and some people would take one side and another, and, and there was really no going back. So, Missouri was a scary, scary place. Right. And it is kind of amazing when you think about that, that, I mean, I know this is fictional, but could these people really have made it through without angering one side enough that they got burnt to the ground? Yeah. 
Well, you know, people learn to do that. And the way you did it was by hiding your true beliefs <laughs> and, and waiting to find out who that was who was riding up the road uh, and what side they were on before you revealed anything about yourself, you know. And people got very, very cagey and circumspect as to who they would tell things to. And I think you do a good job of that. Every time I, Every time a rider came up the road, I felt... I felt myself <laughs> tense up not knowing who it's going to be. And on that subject, the eras, this era that you're depicting, it was a very brutal and violent era. And there are moments in the book that I want to look away from. Mm. Talk to me about writing violence, how that makes you feel and what you want the reader to take away from that. Well, I save up acts of violence you know, in all of the books that I have written, something terrible happens at some point. That's, I think, a reflection of, of life, plus it's the task of, of dramatic writing to do that sort of thing. Mm. But I, I want that terrible thing to really stick with people. And for that reason, I don't just have people uh, shoot each other and ride off. That's not the way it works. And so I do depict acts of violence, and I try to do it in a way that is realistic and honest, which means it doesn't happen briefly, and there aren't any situations where the act doesn't have consequences. That, uh, when you kill somebody or you, you seek to kill somebody, there are going to be consequences, both internally and externally. And, you know, as a writer, I try to ride that out. Um, and people go through, you know, waves of emotion within themselves. Some people discover that they they set out to commit murder and they simply can't do it. And then, you know, what's going to happen then? Uh, so for me, writing violence, it has to be shocking because it's shocking in real life. And mm. why wouldn't it be? Another moment of queasiness that I have in your book is your use of the n-word when referring to enslaved and formerly enslaved people and there are many publishers I know that would ask you to remove that word and although I realize that you're using it in the historical context of the day I feel like there are too many people in contemporary America who do not take historical context into account and that, therefore, it makes it a very difficult word to be used even in context. What are your thoughts on this? And is it something that you would consider removing from future reprints? I really grapple with that issue. It's, it's not something I take the least bit lightly. I do feel an obligation to authenticity. And I think one of the indexes for me in the book of character, I guess would be the word, or uh, um, right thinking quality might be a better word, is whether somebody does use it or if not, what do they use instead. I think one of the things that uh, you would notice about the the use of the N-word in, in my writing is that the worst people tend to use that word casually, and they have no compunction about it. So for me, it, it, it really, you know, it, it is a kind of a question of um, 
it's kind of like violence, frankly, in that um, I don't want to look away from the use of the word because that would, to me anyway, be just about as problematic as um, pretending that, that nobody ever used the word back then because obviously they did. And, and uh, so I feel kind of, in an odd way, I, I feel kind of obligated to have characters use it to set the proper historical context. Um, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. No, I, I have to say that I didn't care for it, even though I know how you were using it. And I know that this is a, a question that you have obviously struggled with. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about Ozark fiction in general. In, in recent years, Ozark noir has definitely become a hot topic that people like to write about and read about. You have Daniel Woodrell's books, maybe the most well-known of which is Winter's Bone. As Columbia-based writer Laura McHugh's books, The Weight of Blood, What's Done in Darkness. Plus, you have the TV show Ozark, not mm -hmm. shot in Missouri for the most part, <laughs> and the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. How do you feel as a long-time Ozark uh, so much Ozark generations behind you. How do you feel about this one-sided view of the area that you love being portrayed to the world as just uh, an area full of dark hollers and drug-addled clans? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as an Ozarker, as a native Ozarker, I'm used to being stereotyped. It kind of comes with the territory. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times, like when I went off to college as a kid, tell people, where are you from? And the, and the first thing they do is they play the little deedle deedle notes from Deliverance um, <laughs> as if, oh, well, that explains everything. Um, and it's something that, that people from the Ozarks learn to navigate. You just simply have to because it's part of your existence. And, you know, a lot of people navigate it very lucratively. Yeah, you know, go to Branson. Uh, you'll see people playing the hillbilly stereotype for all it's worth. And, you know, more power to them is, uh, is uh, my uh, motto. If, if they can do it, fine and dandy. On the other hand, one of the things that I am asked, people sometimes ask me to sort of serve as a spokesman for the Ozarkers. <laughs> and uh, I'm not really comfortable with doing that, but uh, I understand it. I think Ozarkers also exhibit a great deal of resentment sometimes. When you, for example, look at politics, people say, well, you know, why are these, uh, these folks voting the way they do or why do they express themselves the way they do? And I think one of the reasons is that they're resentful and, and it comes from uh, the kind of presentation, the public presentation that they get. So it's a really mixed bag. The, the mythology of the Ozarker is going to be there and you might as well figure out how you're going to deal with it if you're going to write about the Ozarks. You can either play with it like Donald Harrington did in all of his novels or you can seek to correct it, <laughs> as some writers have tried by showing that, you know, people from the Ozarks are just regular folks like everybody else. Um, 
or you can have fun with it. So that you know, there are lots of different responses to that issue, and I think Ozarkers just kind of have to to pick which one they're going to use. Talking about hillbillies, I believe you're working on the fourth book in the Daybreak series, which will take place at the turn of the 20th century. And the reason, I think I read somewhere, the reason that you chose that, one of the reasons you chose that time is it is when the word hillbilly came into regular parlance. Can you tell us anything about the fourth book and and a little bit about why you chose to set it a bit more, expand on that idea of that time period? Sure. And in fact, I'm happy to tell you that I just recently signed a deal on the publication of that Ah. book. So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting out and making some noise with it. There are a couple things going on. You know, I'm, I'm following the Daybreak community, as you mentioned in your introduction, the first book takes place in the late 1850s, early 1860s. Then the next one takes place in the um, years after the war, 1865 and 66. And then the third one takes place in the in the late 1880s, which is the time of the great timber boom down in the Ozarks, and which to me was really significant because it uh, represents one of the few uh, situations where uh, you can really mark an environmental catastrophe to a very small space of time. So as I was following this community, and I and I try to make that community seem sort of like a, a, a microcosm of rural America in general, the next big event to me is the coming of of modernity, the industrial methods come to rural America through agriculture and land use and things like that. And, and uh, the great triumph of modernity in America, to me, in my mind anyway, was the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904, which is this tremendous event, this great big event that in in essence is a kind of celebration of American technological superiority. And it's the emergence of, of America as an imperial power. Uh, we had just got our first set of conquered colonies in Cuba and the Philippines and elsewhere. And, you know, there was this great sense of triumphalism in the country. Uh, and I thought, well, that's going on. And then, of course, I've got the daybreak community making a, this kind of difficult transition into the 20th century within the same state. So to me, that was that was the perfect time period to try to put those two things together. And uh, I want to give the plot away too much, but uh, that's what's going on in the book anyway. And do we know when it might be coming out? I think it'll be next year. We haven't got a timetable or anything worked out yet, but it, uh, my guess would be it'll be sometime in 2023. Fantastic. Well, I, sh- I better hurry through books the third book. I'm like halfway through book two. I've still got to read book three. So I should just be done. I should be done by then and ready for book four. The novels and short story collection of Steve Wigenstein can be found at Daniel Boone Regional Library. And you can also find out more about Steve and read some of his essays on his website, stevewigenstein.com. And Wigenstein is spelled W-I-E-G-E-N. 
S-T-E-I-N, stevewigginstein.com. Steve, thank you so much for introducing me to Utopian Societies and for making time to chat this evening. Well, thank you, Diana. It's been a real pleasure. Whilst imitation may be the greatest form of flattery for metal sculptor Butch Murphy, there was an even higher level of flattery that he achieved in 2021 when one of his metal horse sculptures was stolen from outside the All Souls Unitarian Church across the road from the Kemper Museum of Art in Kansas City. He lists it as his highest achievement. And I have to add that the thieves had impeccable taste, as I think it is my favourite of Butch's 50-plus horse sculptures that he has made since opening his studio 11 years ago. And one which, if I'm reading his website correctly, was displayed at the Columbia Art League back in 2018 when it won second place. Historically, Butch was not a horse person, nor was he an artist, nor a welder, but rather a pulmonary physician, a career which taught him, he says, to be a good observer of the curiosities and miracles of the human body. His abstract sculptures are constructed from assortments of scrap metal, from VW fenders to drilling pipes and barrel rings to hay rakes. He writes that he creates to provoke mystery, hoping for spectator bewilderment and wonder, and that although he had dabbled in creative writing and painting, it wasn't until he tried his hand at sculpture that he found his artistic voice. In mid-Missouri, he has shown his work at the Columbia Art League, Bluestem Missouri Crafts, the Boone County Art Show and the Ashby Hodge Gallery of American Art in Fayette. Plus, his work is in private collections and on public display from South Carolina to the Flint Hills of Kansas. Butch Murphy, what a delight to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's my honor. Let me start by asking you about the theft of the horse from Kansas City. It seems like it can't really have been a spontaneous drive-by decision as they had to cut the horse off its base and the horses are really heavy. So fill us in on that story and what you know about it. Well, it was, as you mentioned, it was quite a high honor to think that a person would risk getting uh, in such a public area, pulling the horse out, risk getting caught and for the consequences. So what what I'm aware of, the person that was able to view it on video said that about five o'clock in the morning, during normal weather, no raining, a person got out of a pickup truck, apparently a male, was able to back up to the area. And then, unfortunately, the horse was staked in. So this, if it was rocked back and forth, these uh, 16-inch stakes into the ground could be wedged loose and then was able to wrangle it into the back of the pickup. It was a heavy piece, and the person was apparently a large person, and that's about all the description we have. I, I, I've told the story many times, but uh, the follow-up to that was it's like a hawk going into a chicken yard and leaving feathers, and with wrangling it around, the person knocked off the tail, which I was able to retrieve, and it now stands as a memorial in my garden in front of our house south of Boonville. Uh, so there were a lot of stories about why somebody wanted to steal it. Uh, it's in a public area, so it could easily be seen. And so at the time, I was said, well, they wouldn't want it for scrap because scrap was so cheap at that time. So you never know why people do that. But I was honored that somebody wanted to take the risk to steal it. 
So when you first heard, was your immediate response one of achievement, high five, or did you have to kind of work your way up to that? You know, I've always told people if they say, aren't you worried about things getting taken when they're on public display? And I said, you know, it's just metal. And um, the energy to build another one would come. And so I really, I did have to process it a little bit. But after, it didn't take me long to feel like I was honored by the whole thing. (laughs) I guess it's a good way of looking at it, silver lining. You say that you were never a horse person, but that you were inspired by the work of found object horse sculptors Deborah Butterfield and David Owen, who is known in Colombia for the horses that sit in front of Simmons Bank on Providence Road. But what was it about their work and the equine subject matter particularly that inspired you? Like, why not dogs or tigers or, I don't know, aardvarks or dolphins? (laughs) Why was it horses that called out to you? Horses provide a lot of opportunity, at least from my perspective. They they don't really care what's going on around them. And it just, um, I just felt like there was a lot of opportunity to abstract what I was seeing and in a fashion that was... um, not so much realism, but it just an opportunity for abstraction. Now, David Owens and Deborah Butterfield pieces, some are very abstract, some are just very realistic. And I'll tell you, my neighbors who have some of my pieces in their yards who are horse people really like the very, they look just like a horse. They don't like the abstractions, but they just provided, I think, an opportunity for me. The other um, animals just did not intrigue me at all. I, I was never a horse person. I, I Friends who had horses growing up, and I would ride with them occasionally, but it's not like it was a special part of my life. But one day we were driving by Citizens Bank in Columbia, and my wife and I stopped just on the uh, east side of the bank and walked into the yard, and I started looking around, looking underneath, and I was intrigued by Owen's ability to fabricate these pieces with very simple what we call armature, the skeleton. And I thought to myself, I want to try that. And I was dabbling in uh, welding for a while, a few years before that, but nothing with any drive. And so I copied uh, about seven of his pieces and then sent him a, a note with some pictures. And he complimented me on my work, which was nice. But what he, in a kind of subtle way, he, he said, you know, you should take off on your own and let this be your project. And I did. And it's been very satisfying for me since. I found over my years at the Columbia Art League that there is a significant overlap between people in the medical profession and the creative urge. But I think you said somewhere that you did not really harbor a burning desire to be creative during your career as a doctor. And I wonder if you have ever pinpointed an aha moment when you realized your retirement career was not going to be golf. Yeah, I did. As, as I did uh, pulmonary work and critical care, which is very demanding um, time-wise and physically. And I knew that I didn't want to be working into my late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and I thought, I'm still healthy. I want to find something that I can do that will be satisfying. And so I. And a person who I grew up next door to, I kept in contact with her, and she married many years ago, a metal sculptor. And so I I visited with them, and he kind of gave me some ideas about how I could outfit a studio. So I think my wife's influence on me also with her background and our history, 
but it, it just, I thought this is something I might want to try. And fortunately, I think that it's really developed into something that's very satisfying, frustrating in the process. I'm not sure how being a physician had any relationship to it, but I do know several physicians who have become creative when they decided to do it, uh, either during their practice or following their practice of medicine. What would you say compels you towards the abstract world? That's a, that's a great question, Diana. I, uh, um, I often, when I'm at art shows, I ask other people the same question. <laughs> and it seems to be that I'm so adverse to photorealism, and that's a bit naive on my part, that I drive towards making things a bit more mysterious so that it captures the viewer now, that can be occur with photography. I moderate a group of artists, two of whom are photographers, and so I'm able to appreciate that. But I think the abstraction is attractive to me because it, it makes people have to stop and look at it and think, what was he thinking? Versus just a realistic horse, um, you know, they walk by and say, hey, it's nice, and, you know, I'll see you later, or pass the salt or something like that. <laughs> so it's a drive to give some mystery. Right. And that's one of the things that I think you talk about in the Missouri Arts Council bio, as I said in my intro, that you want to provoke mystery, hoping for spectator bewilderment and wonder. And in your horses, although they are abstract, they are still clearly horses. So unpack that idea of mystery and bewilderment a bit more. What are you seeking to inspire? I, I'm not sure I'm that uh, sophisticated to answer that question, but I can tell you that uh, the abstracting meaning to cause people to, well, this is, I'll give you an example. People will come up to me and they'll say, hmm, that's really interesting. And they'll, they'll describe what they see and I'll think to myself or even say to them, God, I wasn't even thinking that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, so what it means to me is everybody brings their own story to the piece. Mm. I have had um, one piece uh, that a few years ago, a poet wrote a piece about it, ended up being on an album, a song. But what the poet saw in my piece were things that I never even thought of. And so that means a lot to me because I want people to, to put their own story to it. That's the drive, I think, that I could capsulize what I'm trying to say is I want them to put their own story to it. So if it's so photoreal, they don't see it. They don't derive a story from it and say, well, that's nice. It's really pretty. And they move on. I want them to, um, just like the one that they described that was stolen, there was uh, so many different types of pieces on it, whether they were a, a screwdriver or a horseshoe or a wrench, it allowed people to look and, and, and inquire about this. And so I was also inspired or asked uh, several years ago to write a poetry about the pieces. And I found out that until the horse sculpture was completed, I was not able to give a story about it. So people would ask and say, well, did you have these ideas before you started or did you draw these things? And I said, well, I used to, but now I just let these things evolve. And so 
a lot of that may be subliminal. I don't really know what it's going to say until it's done. I can't remember whether you title your works or whether you leave them untitled. But that's another part of where artists sometimes don't want to lead people on. They don't want to give works a title because they're more interested in what other people see in them. Do you title your works? I've been encouraged to title my works, especially when they're there in a show. But sometimes I just give them a number. <laughs> Because what I've learned from other artists, just like you're saying, they're reading into what you want it to be. And I went, I, I had a sculpture of a very large rose. And a woman came up to me, she said, well, what is that? And I said, it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> and, and she had a, a tough time. She wanted, she insisted that I tell her what it was. And I said, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> so I think that's the kind of central to my uh, thought process. I think it is fascinating that you spent your adult life having to keep your hands super clean. And now they grasp at rusted metal and objects that have been covered in oil and dirt. And I wonder, how did your sense of your hands change when you became a sculptor? Well, I didn't realize how grimy and dirty this sculpturing in metal was. And when I first started thinking about it, my friends or mentors said, this is a very dirty work. And I didn't know how dirty it was until I really got into it. But I just assumed it was part of it. And so I, it was really no conflict. But I will tell you that it's so filthy that since we have a large pond right in front of our house, when I get through on an average day, I go into that pond with a little soap before I get into the house because my wife doesn't uh, like me dragging all that stuff into the house. <laughs> do you still do any doctoring at all? Or are you completely retired? Are, are there days when you really, really need to have your hands looking pristine? <laughs> well, I'll tell you that when I did stop practicing as a physician, I realized that for me to get into this, I had to dive into it totally. And so I literally divorced myself from practice of medicine, stopped all my journals, all my attention was on the world of art. But fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, there are times where um, I serve on certain committees uh, where I'm asked to make comments uh, from a medical standpoint, and I'm able to do that. But for the most part, I'm totally in the field of art now. Another thing I'm curious about it, and and how it relates back to your professional life. I'm curious about your tolerance for trial and error. Art, like much of science, is as much about working out what doesn't work en route to working out what does work. But as a doctor, error or failure can have fatal consequences. So talk to me about having to think completely differently about the way you work and how you deal with the failures. Well, one, in sculpture work, just like painting or ceramics, uh, you can edit your piece. And in my case, I can just add more layers of steel. I can cut out a piece and cover it up again. And so it's an editing process. In the field of medicine, I always considered it an art because the biggest component to what physicians do, even if they do technical procedures like I've done, is um, listening and learning from what the patient says. That's how we answer the questions, as long as we learn how to listen carefully. 
And so the art of medicine is the art of listening. So in, in some respects, uh, that transfers to my piece. What I learned in, in doing these metal sculptures, the first few pieces, I just threw them together. Fortunately, they stayed together. But I began to, to understand the, the, the need to engineer the armature to where it wasn't going to fall apart, that it could withstand all kinds of trauma from weather and, uh, and but the parts that would become weathered, I just accepted that it's just like how things, our bodies age, you know, and we, we change with time. So you have an understanding of the human body and its physiology. Horses are obviously completely different, hugely muscular quadrupeds. But I'm wondering, does your background in anatomy and physiology help you with that process of building the armatures? I'm much better at anatomy now than I was when I was a freshman in medical <laughs> school. But I've grown to appreciate it. One of my classmates who is a photographer, I often ask him whether our instructor of uh, anatomy, whether he would appreciate my uh, knowledge of anatomy today. <laughs> Jokingly, I think of that. So well, tell me a little bit about making your sculptures. You work pretty much exclusively with found scrap metal sheets or parts from other objects. How much do you plan everything versus just picking up a piece of pipe stay and just starting to build? What's your planning and building process? That's a good question. I spend most of my time working out the armature or the structure, internal structure. And when I start to put on what I call the lipstick or the surface, that is really determined by the armature. I can modify things. And I'll tell you that I have done one piece where it's just the armature. And sometimes I've looked at the armature and I think, gee, I don't want to cover this. Now, in terms of found metals and new metals, I do periodically go up to Moberly to a, a recycling plant and I can I know certain things I need. Now, that's taken me all these the last 10 years to figure that out. It's like somebody saying, well, how long did it take you to make this piece? And you can say my whole professional life. So I, I know things that I need now. So I was just given the uh, major part of an oven. A friend said, do you want this? And I said, I'll take it. But then other people will offer me things. And I, I'm very selective now because I think, you know, I'm not sure I really could use that. And then I just have to dump it after a while. And I usually think after two or three years, if I haven't used it, I'm going to get rid of it. So I do have, I now know pretty much what I need. Like, especially right now, I use a fence post, the T post frequently for the legs. Do you mostly build the armatures the same way? I mean, the lipstick, as you say, is the covering is what makes each horse mostly individual. But I'm wondering whether how much the armatures change. The armatures do change depending on what the position of uh, the pose of the horse and what I'm trying to project, what message I'm trying to say. Most of it's in pose. I did a series of about, I think, four horses where they're totally covered with sheet metal and geometric designs. I'm, I'm heavily influenced by the cubist, and so geometry is extremely important to me. And so with those pieces, some of them I had to build out to make prominent musculature, like in the hips and shoulders. 
And then a couple of them, I wanted them to be very flat. So that influenced how I was building the armature. You mentioned your wife earlier, and I know that Corva has had a huge influence on you. But talk to me a little bit about how she has influenced your artistic practice and shaped you as an artist. Well, over the years, I've listened to her as we've done a little bit of traveling and, and looking at art studios. She just uh, has a better eye for art than I do. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the, the funnier part of it, I think, the amusing part is that I, I will very frequently go into the house and say, will you come out here and look at this? And she'll come out and she'll say, no. Then I'll express it with some expletive we can't say it at the moment. And then I'll think about it. And Damn, she's right. So is that because of her art history or just her perceptions of how things come across? Because usually we'll have her come out because I'm confused by it. And I think that I'm just not sure it's going to work. And she says, no, that's going to work fine. Or that piece is too long or you need to shorten that or this. So it's a collaborative effort in that respect. When you have a work that you don't feel is working, do you tend to push through it and just keep adding things until it does work? Or how often do you just think you're going to scrap it? For the most part, I work through it because often my impression at, at a midpoint is if I just stuck to my original idea, it would work. And I, So I'll usually, I may make some minor modifications, but on two horses in particular, one, I made it in a relating back to how I did it when I first started doing this stuff. And I looked at that, and every time I looked at it, it was out in the field, and I looked at it, and every day I looked at it, I thought, I hate that piece. And so I took it back in the studio after a few months of hating it and really took the saw to it, the grinder saw, and just whittled it down and rebuilt it. And then it, I was very happy with it, and now it sits uh, up in uh, Howard County uh, by a pond. And then another one, a piece, I was trying to be consistent with my Cubism influence. And in our condominium in Kansas City, we're right by the Nelson. A lot of people live in our building. Our artist and the guy across the street is a very good artist. And he looked, I showed him some pictures. He said, you know, that doesn't fit with your practice of being a cubist. You need to do this, do this, and do that. And so I had to cut the head and neck off and redo it. And I was very happy with it after that. So tearing it apart is a lot of work, but it pays off. And fortunately, I've not had to do that very often. I just kind of work through it. I remember going to a opening in Kansas City a few years ago, and a young artist was saying, you know, if you make a mistake, most people just think it's, it was intentional, and they say, oh, isn't that cool? And an example of that is I put three 55-gallon barrels, welded them on top of each other, and then was making them. It was an abstraction of a, a tree I saw in our neighborhood, and it fell over and got really dented. And then I realized that that made it even better, and I just took a hammer to the whole thing. And it turned out far better. So, you know, these accidents often uh, pave the way for an improvement. I'm glad that you brought that up, the tree, because I was 
wanted to ask you about the things that aren't horses, lest people think that you are all horses all the time. You do have other works. And I think, and there's a lot of humor in, in some of them. And I think my favorite on your website that I can see has to be half man. So are there just days when you get up and think, oh, I want to do a horse today. And you just noodle around with scrap metal to see what happens. Exactly. Uh, and that's the fun of it. Sometimes you, you have to take a break. It's a motivating factor, and and I enjoy those pieces because it's a totally different. I've made um, several different things. One in particular is it looks like a kind of like a sail. It's about twelve feet tall. I was laying on the floor in our bedroom, and the sun was coming through the upper windows, and it had a reflection on the ceiling. And because we have some strips in our windows, it even added more beauty to it. So I just took a picture of it. It's really it was really a fun piece to do. You know, this has to be fun or there's no point in doing it. Well, to end, let me ask you about something that's in your artist bio about how each production is a study, never expecting perfection, as that would eliminate the search and for you, the end. So when you make the perfect sculpture, however you define perfect, is that when you take up fly fishing? (laughs) Why is perfection the end? Well, uh, there's no perfection. And uh, people often say, you know, or talk about trying to reach that pinnacle. And I think there is no end point for that. And it, it's uh, I've taken that, stolen that somewhat from a friend of mine who's a poet, uh, Ansel Newberger. And he says in writing poetry, you never reach perfection. You always are searching. And, and that's, I found that to be important for me too. So, People will often ask, well, what's your best sculpture? And I'll say the last one I did. But I'm hoping the next one will be even better. Perfect. Well, to see the works of Butch Murphy, visit his website at butchesmetalimages.com. Or if you are visiting Central Methodist University in Fayette, you can find Fender Bender outside Classic Hall, which will be hopefully joined soon by another one. And fingers crossed, we might see one of Butch's horses at this year's Boone County Art Show this October. Butch, thank you so much for sharing your art with us and for making time to chat today. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm pleased to do this. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, author Steve Wigenstein and metal sculptor Butch Murphy. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!